Good evening, Union Wesley, and uh, to our friends that are watching uh, via live stream our, our Bible study. Normally, we're used to being uh, present physically, um, but you know because of the virus, we're doing everything we can to make sure that um, prayer, intercessory prayer continues, uh, that worship service continues, and even Bible study continues. Um, we really need the Lord now, and we don't want uh, the virus to be uh, what hinders us or stops us um, from growing in our relationship with the Lord. So again, thanks for tuning in tonight uh, for um, Bible study. As is our tradition when we come together to meet, um, we always pray before we get started. So let me lead you uh, in a brief word of prayer. Um, eternal God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, we're most grateful, uh, God, that you continue to take care of us and to take care of the members of our family. Oh, Lord, we invoke your presence and ask that you'll be with us uh, as we take up the study of your word. God, it is a privilege to be able to read and to study your word. So, Lord, we ask that you'll have your way. Use your vessel as you, so fit, as you see fit. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Um, I want to start off by saying a special thanks. You know, Union Wesley, uh, I don't do Bible studies all by myself. But there's always a team of people that work and help me uh, to be able to produce what it is that you read and what it is tonight that you're able to see. Special thanks to Communication and Brother Roderick Josie uh, for uh, camera and sound and lights so that you can see it at home or wherever you are tonight. Uh, special thanks to Daniel Bookard, who also is helping with sound. And, and then I want to thank um, Reverend Austin Young. You'll see the PowerPoint presentation for tonight, as, as we typically do. Uh, but he's the one who does the PowerPoint presentation, so we're grateful to him. And then last, uh, but certainly not least, we want to thank uh, our own Doris Atkins for the work that she does uh, to help pull all this together. Many of you probably have received an email with the handout. That's because Doris has already made sure uh, that you have access to the information. Um, so, again, this is our first time trying this. Um, uh, we look forward to your feedback in terms of how clear uh, things have been and um, how well you've been able to follow. Uh, so uh, we've been under this Bible study entitled um, Purpose of the Church. The subtitle for us is Worship. We've done Worship Part 1, Part 2, and Part 3. Um, part 3 was done by Reverend Cedric Stroud and then by uh, the Reverend Austin Young. But tonight I want to deal with Worship Part 4. Part 4 is what we want to deal with. Um, so, uh, for me, I always have a foundational scripture. I always have a scripture that uh, really is what drives our lesson. Uh, and tonight, I want to go back to a familiar text that we've dealt with under worship. But I want to um, explore it in a little different way. Uh, so, um, if you've got your Bible with you, or you've got your iPad, or your uh, cell phone, Go with us to our foundational scripture, 
which is in the Gospel according to St. John, uh, John chapter 4, and uh, it starts with verse 20, but it'll end with verse 24. Uh, let me, Union Wesley, read um, kind of quickly through a portion of this text as we jump into our study for tonight. Uh, it says, Our fathers worship in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. And I want to stop right there. Um, there's nothing that's more important in the life of a believer in Christ than true spiritual worship. There's, more, there's nothing more important in the life of a man or a woman than to be focused on worshiping God. To worship God for the believer in Christ, it's, it's supreme. It is uh, the ultimate thing that we do uh, unto the Lord. So the reason this text that we're dealing with tonight from John chapter 4 uh, is all about worship. Uh, and this text says, God is seeking true worshipers. I'm not making that up, Union Wesley. That's what the text says, that God is seeking true worshipers. It goes on to say, who worship him in spirit and in truth. So for the text to say that God is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth is to also say the converse, which is that there are true worshipers, there also must be false or fake worshipers. This text is about God seeking True worshipers, worshipers who are sincere, worshipers who are authentic and genuine in their worship. I want you to look again at John chapter 4, and I want to look at verse number 20, where it says, Our fathers worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men Ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither worship in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Union Wesley, Jesus is telling this woman that a significant transition. A significant change is about to happen. A change is about to happen when it comes to worship. That worship as she had been taught and even as she had been accustomed to, that worship is about to change. And Union Wesley, things change whether we want them to change, uh, whether we desire change. Uh, change happens whether you want it or not. And that's what's about to happen in this particular text. Uh, there's a wonderful passage of scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 16. 
that I'd like to go to, Deuteronomy 16 and 16, uh, that gives us a little better glimpse of some history for the people of God when it came to worship. Uh, so you should see it on the screen. It says, Deuteronomy 16 and 16, three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose in the feast of unleavened bread and in the feast of weeks and in the feast of tabernacles and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. So what the Lord is sharing with Moses in Deuteronomy 16 and 16, he's sharing with them what God expects them to do when it comes to worship. God is clear that for the people to come together in worship, that was to be done three times. Three times a year, there was this centrality when it came to the people of God coming to worship. So, uh, the first point, under the old way of worship, the Old Testament, place of worship was significant. All Israelite males had to travel to a place, it's in the text, three times a year for the three annual feast days. Those three annual feast days, as we read from Deuteronomy 16 and 16, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, Union Wesley, please know that the Feast of Weeks, though it seems uh, like a feast that we haven't heard of, really is um, a high holy day, a feast day that the New Testament talks about. The Feast of Weeks in the New Testament is Pentecost. Pentecost means weeks, or weeks means Pentecost. And Pentecost means 50th. The Feast of Weeks was celebrated seven weeks after the Passover. You and Wesley, do you remember Acts chapter 2 uh, when Pentecost came and talked? about how the Holy Spirit descended upon all of those that were there in Jerusalem, that were in the upper room. The text says that they were about 120 in number, and the Holy Spirit descended upon them like cloven tongues of fire. And the text says that they all began to speak, not in an unknown tongue, but a known tongue. But the Bible says that all of those that had gathered in Jerusalem, they each heard in their own language. In Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost. They're celebrating the Old Testament Feast of Weeks. So again, Union Wesley, what you should walk away with this is that in the Old Testament, the people gather uh, for worship collectively or corporately for those feast days. And the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, was uh, one of those days. Know that they had to travel wherever they lived, however far they had to go. You were required by law to travel for worship. 
Um, so uh, we know they didn't have automobiles, so whatever uh, means of transportation, whatever camel, whatever donkey, whatever mode of getting there, that's what they used to travel to the place where corporately, collectively, they gathered for worship. Now, I'm about to share something with you that maybe you knew or maybe you didn't know, um, but scripture lets us know that the first place uh, that the people of God gathered for worship collectively or corporately was not Jerusalem. A lot of times we think that Jerusalem was the first place that the people of God uh, came together collectively or corporately, but it's not. So um, if you will, look at 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 1, excuse me, verse number 3, where it says this. Um, and this man went up out of the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord were there. You mean, Wesley, what this particular passage, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3, it's talking about Elkanah. Uh, Elkanah is the husband of Hannah, and Hannah is the mother of Samuel. So Elkanah, the text says, went yearly. He went yearly to worship he went yearly to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So uh, if anybody ever asked you the question, um, what's, what's the first place that Israel ever came uh, to worship collectively or corporately? Uh, you can show your biblical uh, smart by answering the question, they went to Shiloh. So Jerusalem was not the first place that they gathered collectively first, but Shiloh is the first place that the Israelites gathered for worship or sacrifice. Again, it's not Jerusalem, but say it with me, Union Wesley, it's Shiloh. Now, I just heard all of your voices uh, respond uh, and answer the question uh, correctly. So thank you for your participation um, in our Bible study uh, tonight. Again, they worship in Shiloh three times a year collectively they came. Uh, Jerusalem would become the center of Israelite worship by them building the temple there. But it was not the first place that they gathered collectively uh, for worship. Again, Shiloh was. Can I take you to another text that kind of helps uh, to support that? Uh, it's a wonderful passage of scripture in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse number 12. If you'll go there with me, Jeremiah 7 and 12. Uh, it's on the, your screen. Uh, it's there in your scripture or your iPad or your phone. It says this, but go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, that's past tense. Where I set my name at first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. 
So what I want you to grasp or to walk away here, Union Wesley, is that the Lord in Jeremiah 7 and 12 affirms the fact that Shiloh was the first place or city where Israel came together to collectively and corporately worship God together. Uh, again, Jerusalem would be uh, the next place that would be the holy city where the temple would be. So the first place or city for collective and corporate worship is Shiloh. Union Wesley, place of worship was always important to God's people. God's people, when it came to worship, they always came to a place. Did you hear what I said, Union Wesley? I'm going to repeat it again. Um, God's people, I don't know about anybody else's people, but God's people always came to a place to worship. Place and worship were inseparable. Uh, to worship, you had to come to a place. And listen, I'm not playing this uh, Bible study for us today. Uh, this is part four of our Bible study. And it's amazing. Nobody but God could orchestrate this study about worship. And Old Testament, they came to a place to worship. And here you and I are in 2020, not able to come to a place called Union Wesley and worship, or not being able to come to a place to have intercessory prayer, or come to a place to even have Bible study. Union Wesley, what we must understand is, as important as place might be, place is not necessary for worship. You and I do not need a place to come to for us to worship. Now, I want to be clear. I miss you, Union Wesley, and I hope that you miss me too. I miss us coming together for worship. I miss us coming together for Bible study. I miss us coming together collectively. Uh, I really do miss you. I'm not making that up. Um, but what I do understand is I do not need a place to come to for worship to happen. You and I, in our relationship with the Lord, ought to be mature enough that we don't need a place, but we can worship God wherever we are. And what we're going to see Jesus do with John chapter 4 is Jesus is about to change everything. He's about to really turn over the apple cart where the Samaritans went to a place to worship, the Jews went to a place to worship, but Jesus is about to say none of that is important. Place is not a priority. Are you with me, Union, West, Union Wesley? Um, so we do not need a place for us to gather, for us to come to worship, but we ought to be able to worship without coming to a place. Would you say amen for me right there, Union Wesley? Uh, amen. Um, so now I want to talk about uh, worship is always an issue of salvation. Not about place, all right? Um, but worship is always an issue of 
salvation. It's all about being saved. Um, so I want to take you to a passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I want to look at verse number 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse 23. Union Wesley, are you there? Amen. I'll give you a couple of seconds. Um, take a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse uh, number 23. If you're not there, uh, just look at the screen and follow along uh, as I read just a little bit of First Corinthians chapter 14, verse number 23. Uh, Union Wesley, please know that this particular text is always associated with the issue of speaking in tongues. And hear me, this text still is about speaking in tongues. Uh, but let me just zero in and try to make a further insight from verse number uh, 23, uh, where Paul says, If therefore the whole church be come together, hear that coming together again, unto one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say, You are mad? You're out of your mind. You're insane. But if all prophecy, that is, speak the truth of God in the language understood, and there come in one that believes not or is unlearned, he is convicted by all and judged by all. Verse number 25, Union Wesley, says... And thus all the secrets of his heart made manifest. Notice, if you will, that if you really want to get to a person's heart, or let me use the expression to crack open a person's heart, to get to their heart. If you want to get to the heart of somebody uh, that is an unbeliever, that is unsaved, Hear me, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but if you want to get to the heart of somebody that is unsaved, they're not a believer, if you really want to penetrate their heart, hear me, no offense, but you don't want to speak in tongues to them. You don't want to speak in tongues to somebody that is an unbeliever, the gospel of the word of God. Hear me, somebody. You want to speak in a tongue that they can understand. Because if you speak the gospel into the heart of the person and they're able to understand it, then the possibility of them being convicted can happen or them being saved. Um, so, so hear me. Uh, speaking in tongues is the gift of the Spirit. Uh, the Bible talks about it. But when we talk about unbelievers and we talk about people that are not saved, what we really want to do is we want to speak the gospel to them in a way or a language that they can understand. We don't want them to look at us like we're crazy and say that we're insane. Now, now hear what Paul says uh, when you speak to an unbeliever, somebody that's not saved, in a language that they can understand. Look at what the response is. It's there in verse 25. It says, look at the response, falling down. On his face, he will worship God. 
He will, not it's a possibility of maybe, no. He will fall on his face and worship God. Um, so look at the next point here. Um, I believe that you have, that you have in this verse, the initial response to salvation. Can I say that again? I believe that in this verse that we read for you, uh, we have the initial response to salvation. That is Paul's way of indicating the man has been brought to conviction. That is Paul's way of indicating that the man has been saved. He is willing to worship God and report that God is truly in his or her midst. That's the only way to worship God. You see here, evangelism with the result of worship, that is the goal of evangelism, is to worship God. The goal of evangelism is for somebody to be convicted, somebody to be saved, and as a result of them being convicted, as a result of them being saved, they will worship God. Not a possibility, they will worship God. If they're saved, if they've been convicted, they will worship God. Again, I'd say the goal of salvation is to worship God. So there's no way you and I ought to be saved. There's no way we ought to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and we don't worship. The evidence of our salvation is that we worship. Can I take you to another passage of Scripture, Union Wesley, tonight? Uh, it's Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, um, where Paul defines a believer in Christ. He says, and I quote, one who worships, catch the word, one who worships God in the spirit, who rejoices in Christ Jesus and has no confidence in the flesh. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and 3, he says that a believer in Christ that's saved is one who worships God. Um, so the evidence of our being saved can be seen in our worship. All right? And he says that there's no confidence in the flesh, but we worship uh, in in spirit, as a believer in Christ is one who worships God in spirit. Somebody say in spirit. Um, so, so listen to the next point uh, that will be on your screen. Uh, it says, so worship is that which God seeks. I'm not seeking worship, but God seeks worship. What takes you from an unacceptable or being an unacceptable worshiper to an acceptable worshiper <laughs> is salvation. Can I say that again for you? Wesley? Keep it on the screen for a second. Uh, I said that uh, so worship is that which God seeks. What takes us from being an unacceptable worshiper 
to an acceptable worshiper is salvation and salvation in Jesus Christ. So what makes my worship now acceptable, where God receives it, is that I'm a believer in Christ and that I'm saved. Uh, again, what a wonderful passage of scripture uh, that is. And Union Wesley, what that scripture does about uh, being saved and how when we're saved, our worship now becomes acceptable versus when I'm not saved, then my worship to God is unacceptable. Union Wesley, our worship can be acceptable to one another and not be acceptable to God. And I'm telling you, what's at the heart of worship is our salvation. What makes my worship acceptable to God is that I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've allowed Christ to come into my life. Uh, I've allowed Christ to save me. And I've allowed Christ to change my life. Now, this passage of scripture in John chapter 4 uh, is a great example of this. Uh, again, it's the story of the woman from Samaria. Um, so let's go back to John uh, chapter 4. If I can back us up just for a moment, it's not on the screen, but let me just talk to you for a minute just to give some context and background uh, to John chapter 4. Um, I know we started with verse 20, but just a little bit of context. This is about the Samaritan woman. Um, but verse 4 says, it's not on your screen, just let me give background. It says, he must need go through Samaria. Uh, and that is like saying that this woman has a divine appointment, or Christ has a divine appointment assignment with this woman of Samaria. Uh, this was a woman God was seeking. He was seeking her so that she might become a true worshiper. Hear me, she's not a true worshiper yet. This is starting to feel real good to me, Union Wesley. She's not a true worshiper yet, all right? But she's about to become a true worshiper. So God is seeking her out. So God is sending Jesus out of his normal route or routine so that he could go through Samaria, and the text says, uh, to a place called Sychar, which is near a, pot of, a plot of land uh, that, it, that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, where Jacob's well is there. And the text says um, that the woman comes in the evening, which is like 6 o'clock p.m. or in the evening, to draw water. And Jesus said to her, he says this, and I'm quoting, he says, give me drink. All right, so Jesus asked this woman uh, for a drink, and what the woman says to him is, how is it that you being a Jew ask drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Union Wesley catch what it is that she's saying. Jews don't use the same vessels as Samaritans. Jews don't drink from the same cup as Samaritans. We don't have that kind of relationship. And here's the question. 
How do they get to this relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews that is so adversarial and so hostile towards one another? Union Wesley, I'm so glad you asked the question. Uh, so um, uh, go to your next uh, point on the slide, which says uh, the Israelites of that land had once been united. Uh, that's number one. They had once been united under Saul. They were united under David. They were united and under Solomon. They were united. When the kingdom split, the northern kingdom, that was Israel, and the southern kingdom, that was Judah, became two independent nations, if you will. Now, you and Wesley, just let me talk for a little bit and give you a little bit more background in terms of how we got to this hostile adversarial relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. Let me bore you uh, with a little bit of history for just a moment. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken by the Neo-Assyrian uh, Empire. Most of the people were taken captive and they were hauled off to Assyria. They were deported uh, and they were made slaves to the Assyrians. I'm trying to answer the question on how we get to this adversarial relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews that this woman is talking about. The only people allowed to remain in the land, catch this union, Wesley, were poor folk. If you were poor, if you didn't have any means, then you stayed in the land and you were not deported or taken from your homeland. Uh, the poor people were considered a liability. No sense in hauling off all of the welfare cases. They left them to be right there in the land. Union Wesley, the foreigners from surrounding areas, particularly from Babylon, began to move in. And as they moved in, these Gentile foreigners, if you will, intermarry with the remaining poor Israelites. Uh, here's your next point. Uh, they were considered, catch this somebody, they were considered a half-breed race. A half-breed race is like saying that they were not authentic Israelites they were not an authentic people. Again, they were considered half-breeds. They were known as, catch it somebody, they were known as Samaritans. For the name of the city of Samaria was the capital of the city. So Samaritans, again, become this half-breed uh, people. Uh, they are Israelites. Uh, and they are those Babylonians that intermarried and had children but were left in the land. Um, but they're considered by the Jews to be less of a people of God uh, than the Israelites or the Jews were. So Union Wesley, while being in the land with 
with those Babylonians and intermarrying, what you have is you have this combination of Judaism and paganism that becomes a mixed kind of religion. The Samaritan people, they want to maintain their Jewish heritage is what they want to do, and they beg Israelite priests who would come and teach them to worship the true God, but they're rejected, they're told uh, that they cannot do it. And when the remnant that was taken away captive, I'm talking about the southern kingdom now, that's Judah in the Babylon, when they come back, what they do is they immediately go into the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of the temple. And the Samaritans, those that were left, they came down and they wanted to help, but because they were not recognized as being authentic God's people, they were rejected from helping. They were denied being able to participate uh, in the work uh, and the worship um, that those that were considered the Israelites uh, or Judah uh, and the people of God. Um, so they're rejected in their worship um, early on in their history. Uh, and we see it uh, happening uh, in the Old Testament. So when we get to the New Testament, we can understand why there is so much hostility and hatred and dislike between Samaritans and Jews. So this woman is totally caught off when Jesus talks to her, number one, and number two, asks her for something to drink. Samaritans were despised and they were looked down upon. They were seen as less of a people by the Jews. So what Jesus is about to do is he's about to cross the line. He's about to do something that in that tradition, in that time, had never been done. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans and Samaritans had no dealing with Jews. So uh, the woman uh, says in verse 20, I'm back in John chapter 4 and 20. She says, our fathers, the Samaritans, worship in this mountain. And ye say, you Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So her, the real question or the implication here is, who's right? Do we go, <laughs> do, do we go and worship? Uh, on the mountain that's in Samaria? Or do we go to Jerusalem and worship uh, in the temple there? And what Jesus is saying is that the hour is now come when the true worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and truth. They're not going to worship in this mountain of the Samaritans. And they're not even going to worship uh, there in Jerusalem in the temple. So place and worship is about to be changed in a major way. And that change happens by the Lord Jesus Christ coming into a person's life and a person being saved. Salvation is quintessential uh, to worship. Uh, I worship because I'm saved. Uh, and it really is not a matter of place. Jesus saves this woman. 
And this woman is able to worship because she opens up her heart and receives Christ. Yeah, Wesley, uh, let me take you to another, another piece. I'm back in John chapter 4. Is everybody okay? I hope everybody's okay. Um, John chapter uh, 4, uh, again, verses 20 and 24. Uh, I want to look at what I call the object of worship. The object of worship, you kind of see that. Uh, verse 21, uh, at the end of the verse, it says three words. Worship the Father. The middle of verse 23, these words, worship the Father. Verse 24, the middle of the verse says, worship him. Who are we to worship? The Father. The Father worship him. But it says more than that, so the object of our worship is not the pastor of the church. The object of our worship is not the presiding elder or the bishop, but the object of worship is God. And God is the one who is to be worshipped. Look at what it says. Don't go to it on the screen. But it says, verse 24, who is he? God is a spirit. God is a spirit is what it says in verse 24. So this gives us, this gives us what I call two aspects to the object of worship. Two aspects, and they're on your screen. Uh, let, me, let me give them to you. One, God as spirit. And hang with me a moment, Union Wesley. We'll talk a little bit more about this point about God as spirit. But two aspects, God as spirit. And then the second aspect is God as father. One speaks of his essential nature. Okay? And one speaks of his essential relationship. So let me back up again. One speaks of his essential nature. That's the essence in terms of who God is. All right? Uh, and God's essential nature is God is spirit. All right? The other speaks of God's essential relationship, and that essential relationship is God as Father. Um, so we see in this text, uh, Jesus talks about God as spirit, and then he talks about God as Father. First, God is spirit. Again, God, God is spirit. You know, when we start talking about God as spirit, the question becomes, I mean, what comes to your mind? What do you think about when you think about God as spirit? Because here's the challenge. When, when, when you have to um, uh, try to describe or draw a picture of a spirit, it becomes somewhat complicated um, to imagine God as spirit because um, it's hard to put flesh and blood and, and a head and fingers on a spirit. But the text says that God is spirit. 
Literally in Greek, it means spirit, the God, spirit, the God or God, the spirit. Um, so God, the spirit is one and the same when it comes to spirit and God. All right. So 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 God is spirit. Again, it's hard uh, to um, paint a picture of of spirit. Uh, Look at Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 9. Uh, Jesus uh, says the word here uh, that I want to lift up real quick. Uh, Union Wesley, Jesus says uh, in Luke 24 and 29, he says, this is me, it's Jesus. He says, a spirit hath not flesh and bones. So a spirit hath not flesh and bones. And bones. So, so it becomes problematic for me to be able to describe God as spirit when spirit uh, does not have flesh and bones. Uh, so, so Union Wesley, a real challenge for us is I think sometimes that, that we describe God um, in ways that I wonder if we're describing God as father. Because it's easier to paint a picture, a visible picture of a father or God as father, and it becomes more complicated to get an image of God as spirit. Uh, so I want to look, and I know I've given you a lot of scripture tonight, uh, that's because you're not here. If you were here, uh, we'd be able to dialogue a little bit more, um, but bear with me tonight. I want to look another passage of scripture, Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 18. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18. Isaiah 40 and 18. Ewing uh, Wesley, it says this in Isaiah chapter 40 and 18. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? So this issue in Isaiah is what are you going to compare God to? So what they do is, in Isaiah chapter 40 and 18, read on the rest of that. What they do is, they compare God in tangible and, and a physical way. Uh, what do I mean by that is, uh, they describe God uh, in ways like carving an image. An image with silver. Um, they describe God uh, in carving an image uh, like a goldsmith would do. Uh, they describe God in um, carving God when it comes to silver. And they give another example of describing God by carving out an image uh, when it comes to a tree or when it comes to wood. Um, so they use uh, tangible uh, ways to describe, to describe God is what they do. Uh, this uh, is the God they describe. Again, I say that it, it's a little more problematic to describe God uh, when it comes to spirit. But the text says that God is a spirit. But what we see in scripture is they're always trying to describe God. Um, in physical or tangible ways. 
uh, Union Wesley. Uh, let me read. Don't go there. Uh, but uh, still in Isaiah chapter 40, but verses uh, 23 and 40 says, uh, He maketh, meaning God, the princes to become nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them. And they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take away their stumbling. Wesley, here's your next point uh, that you're filling in your blank. In other words, he says that the princes or the chief people or the most important people or the most powerful people in the world are nothing when compared to God. You and I got to be careful of comparing com important people, people of substance and people of means Comparing them to God, because Isaiah says that I don't care who the most powerful and important person in the world might be, they're nothing compared to God. Um, so in other words, uh, when, when you conceive of God and you draw in your mind's eye or in theological terms or biblical terms, the concept of God, hear me, Union Wesley, you cannot reduce God to an image. I got to say that again. It's on your screen as well. So fill in your blank. Again, you cannot reduce God to an image. That's what they did in Isaiah chapter 40. But we cannot reduce God to an image. We cannot reduce God to a building. Oh, you and Wesley, I hope you heard what I said, you can't reduce God to an image and you cannot reduce God to a building. He cannot be reduced to a statue. God cannot be reduced to anything. God is spirit and he must be worshipped in the fullness of his eternal spirit. So again, God, God is a spirit. You know what? I hope that you're really getting this. Oh, so we can't make God any other image. We reduce God and we make God lesser than who he really is. Um, so that immediately says to us, Union Wesley, you don't have to go to a place at a time to draw near to God. Because God cannot be reduced to a place and God cannot be reduced to a particular time. Are you with me? I hope this is making sense. Uh, and I hope uh, that it really is speaking uh, to our present situation, uh, to our present reality, and what we're facing and what we're dealing with right now. Uh, God is not uh, reduced to anything that we could ever make. God cannot be reduced to a, to a place. So what we know is wherever we are right now, God is there. I don't know your address, but hear me, the God that we serve knows exactly where you live. And hear me, God ought to be worshipped wherever we are. We ought to worship God everywhere and not just 
in a building that we call a church. I said to you, Union Wesley, that the church is not where we go, but the church is who we are. Union Wesley, you and I should be worshipers of God no matter where we are. Um, so Union Wesley, we can watch a service live stream. We can, we can be present and participate, you know, uh, by watching uh, Bible study. But God is everywhere, and we worship him uh, where we are. Um, I know I've given you a lot of passages of scripture, but Union Wesley, can I give you one more tonight? And I promise after I give you this one more, uh, I won't give you any more uh, tonight. Uh, though, hear me, I've got a lot more I could give you. Um, so we'll save some uh, for next week. Uh, but I pray that this Bible study is being a blessing to you tonight. Uh, I pray that you and I are seeing the shift and the change when it comes to worship when we look at John chapter 4 uh, and this woman of Samaria. Uh, so so uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23 and 23 uh, says this. Listen to what the Lord says. Uh, it's on your screen. He says, uh, am I a God at hand? Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God far off. In other words, what he is saying is, listen, I'm a God. Am I a God someplace? No, God is not a someplace God. He is the God of everywhere. Not someplace, but everywhere. Everywhere you go, God is there. Whether you're at home or whether you're still able to go to work, uh, whether you go to shoppers or to giant, God is there. So often we have bad theology and we start praying, Lord, uh, go to the hospital. Lord, go to the sick room. Lord, go to this. And God doesn't need to go anywhere. He is not the God of some place, but he is the God of everywhere. So wherever we go, before we get there, God is already there. Union Wesley, I admonish us tonight um, to worship God everywhere. Amen? Uh, amen.